Welcome to Religion for Life at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. We take on the small and the large at Religion for Life. Today, the really large, the universe, our place in it, and what is required of this generation to be honored rather than reviled ancestors. I'm John Schuck, the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College. My guests are Nancy Ellen Abrams and Joel Premack. They are co-authors of a new book called The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. And they are speaking with me via Skype from Santa Cruz, California. Welcome. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks, John. There's a sense of urgency about your book. Um, this is more than a book on the latest theories of cosmology. You're on a, miss- on a mission with a message. How, d- how did you come to write this book, and why is it important now? Joel uh, is one of the world leaders in uh, figuring out how the universe actually works. How did it begin? Why are there galaxies? How did they form? All these things. And his work over the last 30-some years has basically produced a completely new picture of reality on the very largest scales. For the first time, we actually know something about the entire universe. And I have been living with him. I'm his wife. I've been living with him for 30 years, watching this uh, amazing, uh, really, our transformation of the picture of reality. And I've been wondering, well, what does this mean? We, We don't live in the universe we thought we were living in. This must have implications for the rest of us. So uh, he and I would be talking about it, and eventually we taught a course about it at the University of California. Finally, we wrote a book called uh, our first book, which was called The View from the Center of the Universe. And what we realized was that for the first time in centuries, we actually can say how humans fit into the universe. And we have a really interesting place. We can say something really substantial about it. We're actually central in multiple ways. And this is the beginning of a picture of reality that could actually be shared by people around the world, regardless of their religion or their background or anything, because it's a picture that transcends all religions. It is the reality that we all came out of. So that is actually a huge idea, and developing that idea has been taking us years. I mean, what are the implications of living in this new universe? So we wrote that first book. Then we were invited by Yale University to give something called the Terry Lectures, which is a kind of a prestigious series of lectures that um, you give four lectures over two weeks and then Yale University Press publishes it as a book. So we went further than the first book. In the Terry Lectures, we decided to really focus on what are some of the political and economic implications of living in a universe that is... um, quite astonishing, but that its laws control us because we're part of the universe. So there's a lot more of the political and economic and also uh, in the lectures and then also in the book that um, is based on that, The New Universe and the Human Future. Because it was lectures, we used a lot of visuals. And so um, the second book is uh, much shorter from the point of view of words, but it's got fantastic pictures, not just pictures that are based on light, pictures from Hubble Space Telescope, but it has, um, Joel is also one of the world leaders in 
uh, supercomputer simulations of how the universe evolved. And so there are embedded videos in this book. And when you read the book, you there we have uh, set up a website so that you can watch the videos as you go through the book. And these are videos, uh, some of which are based on uh, actual observations, but many of which are based on simulations where you can watch a huge portion of the universe, a, a cube, for example, a billion light years on a side, evolving from the beginning to today. It's absolutely astonishing. And that we know this stuff now is really almost a miracle. But it's not a miracle, of course. It's the work of people like Joel and, and of course, many others around the world. Um, the website is new-universe.org, new-universe.org. And my guests, uh, Nancy Ellen Abrams and Joel Premack. Uh, Joel, it seems that our knowledge of the universe has, has just increased greatly in the last even 20 years or so. And you've developed a theory called cold, dark matter. Can you explain that for non-scientists and its significance? Sure. Uh, I think the first thing to appreciate is that uh, over the last, especially 15 years, uh, not only has our knowledge tremendously increased, largely because of these wonderful telescopes that we have available, uh, the great telescopes in space, the one that everybody knows about is Hubble Space Telescope, but there's actually uh, a whole armada of wonderful telescopes in space, and also great telescopes on the ground, like the Keck Observatory, the world's largest uh, in Hawaii. Uh, so what's happened is that all the old theories that were competing with each other uh, have been swept away, except for one. And there's now a worldwide consensus shared by essentially all astronomers that we basically have the right picture, as far as we understand it, of the origin, evolution, structure, and composition of the universe. Now, the surprising thing about this picture is that almost everything in the universe turns out to be invisible. All the stars in all the galaxies all the dust and glowing gas clouds and everything else that we can see is about half of 1% of what's actually there. The ordinary matter in the universe, the atomic stuff, is only about 4%. So only about a tenth of that is visible. The vast majority is two invisible things called dark matter and dark energy. Uh, Almost all the mass that holds a big galaxy like the Milky Way together, in fact, all the galaxies together, is this invisible dark matter. And we still don't know what the dark matter is or what the dark energy is. We know enough about them that we can describe, simulate uh, the evolution of the whole universe and also of small parts of it, things like galaxies. But there are still great questions that we're all working on. Uh, including the uh, identity of these mysterious substances. Uh, as recently as 1997, uh, there were still great enigmas in uh, the study of the whole universe, stars that seemed older than the universe, things like that. But now that's all been swept aside. Uh, we're getting data from all these different telescopes. Uh, we're putting it all together in our big computer simulations. and we're getting an extremely consistent picture. Uh, essentially, every kind of data is telling us the same thing. And that's why there's now this worldwide consensus in uh, the subject of cosmology, the, the study of the whole universe. 
My guests are Dr. Joel Primack, Distinguished Professor of Physics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, specializing in the formation of evolution of galaxies and uh, the nature of dark matter that makes up the mass of the universe, and co-authoring a book with Nancy Ellen Abrams, and the book is called The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. This is Religion for Life. How far back can physics take us regarding the history of the universe, and, and what's its story? How old is the universe, and how big is it, and where is it going? Um, it turns out that when you talk about the universe, you have to be pretty careful to define your terms and make it a little clearer what exactly you're talking about. Uh, we don't know how big the universe is. It could even be infinite in size. We do know how big the visible part is. Uh, if you ask how far away the most distant things are that we can see light from, the answer is about 46 billion light years. Now, the most distant things are the atoms that radiated that uh, heat radiation of the Big Bang that we're detecting now with our instruments. So we're not seeing it as galaxies. Galaxies hadn't formed then. Uh, that light was radiated about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, after the beginning of the universe. So that's as far as we can see. Now, despite the fact that it's so far away, we also know that the universe is about 13.7 billion years old. So this most distant stuff is now about 46 billion light years away, but the universe is only 13.7 billion years old. How is that possible? And the answer is that the distant part of the universe is expanding much faster than the speed of light. And when you tell that to people, they say, but doesn't that violate relativity? And the answer is no. Uh, everything that we do is based on general relativity, Einstein's advanced theory of space-time and gravity. Uh, and uh, it's all much trickier than uh, the simple version that people first learn about, which is called special relativity. Anyway, uh, we are pretty sure that the universe started in an extremely rapid expansion that we call inflation, because that also makes lots of predictions, and every prediction that we can test turns out to be exactly right. So we're pretty confident that uh, the universe started in this extremely rapid expansion that only lasted a fraction of a second. And then the universe turned into uh, expansion, but a much slower kind of expansion that in fact was constantly slowing down until about five billion years ago. And then roughly at the same time that the sun and our solar system formed and Earth, the universe started to speed up instead of slowing down its expansion. And it's speeding up more and more now. And that's the consequence of the dark energy. Dark matter and ordinary matter uh, gravitationally attracts, but dark energy causes space to repel space. And that's now taking over because uh, as the universe has expanded, the matter has thinned out, but the dark energy has not. And so the dark energy is now winning. And the result is that in the distant future, the Galaxies will become real island universes, the, the galaxies and the small clusters of galaxies that are held together by gravity. And the more distant parts of the universe will be flying away faster and faster and will ultimately become invisible in billions of years. Uh, anyway, that's a, a rough idea of how the world works on the big scale. Uh, and uh, as Nancy said, 
you can find illustrations and even videos uh, that show all these things very visually on our website, new-universe.org. And of course, the, the text of all this that, that explains how it works is in our book, The New Universe and the Human Future, based on our lectures, uh, the Terry Lectures at Yale University. I'm thinking of a film a few decades ago by Woody Allen, and in the movie, uh, the main character is a little boy, and he's depressed. And so his mother takes him to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist asks him why he's depressed, and he says, the universe is expanding. And, uh, and, and one day, you know, the sun is going to expand and swallow us up. And the psychiatrist is trying to cheer him, cheer him up and say, well, you know, that isn't going to happen for millions of years. And his mother's exasperated and says, what's that your problem? But, of course, the whole point is the existential angst of the 20th century and the big universe. I'm just a insignificant piece of dust on a pale blue dot in the suburbs of a third-rate galaxy and nobody's nobody with no purpose or meaning. And you are telling us in this book that's, that I should change my view of that. That I do oh, have a purpose yes. in meaning. Oh, definitely, <laughs> that view is gone. Okay, um, tell me what's that. What what is what is new? What, how am I more central than I thought? Okay, well, well, let me just say first that this idea that we are just living on an average planet of an average star in a universe where no place is different from any other place is based on 17th century physics. Um, at the time of Newton, they really didn't know what lay beyond the solar system. And so people just extrapolated. They just assumed that the way that things are here in our solar system with the planets going around the sun is the way it is forever outward. So, um, so thinking about outer space, they just thought, well, there's just stars forever and some of them may have planets around them. But that was totally a guess based on very limited um, knowledge. In fact, now that we have this picture, we realize that as you look at larger and larger size scales, the whole picture of reality changes. Even the laws of physics that control events are different on very, very different size scales. So you can't extrapolate from the way things work uh, in the solar system to the whole rest of the universe. You really have to learn how it works. And that has taken literally centuries. Um, you know, it wasn't really possible until there were these amazing telescopes and supercomputers. It wasn't possible before that. So now that we have this very big picture, what we've discovered is that human beings are actually central to this new picture in very interesting ways. Not, we're not literally sitting in the middle of the universe because there is no middle to an expanding universe, mm -hmm. but we are central to some of the principles that underlie it. So for example, our bodies, are midway between the largest and the smallest possible sizes that we can say anything about. So if we define the largest size we can say anything about as the visible universe, because as Joel pointed out, we don't really know anything beyond that. The largest size is the visible universe, and the smallest size is something called the Planck length, which is determined by the interaction of quantum mechanics and relativity. Between those two extremes, we are central. Our bodies are central. And it turns out that we really couldn't be anywhere else because if we were much larger, we wouldn't be, our, uh, the problem would be that our internal communications would be too slow for us to really think because there's a speed of light and that limits, um, that limits the uh, movement of, of information. So an intelligence very much larger than humans would not really work. 
an intelligence much smaller than humans would also not really work because it wouldn't be made of enough atoms to be complex enough to have our kind of consciousness. So it turns out that the kind of intelligence, the kind of consciousness that human beings have is probably because we are mid-sized. And that means that if there are intelligent aliens, we don't know if there are intelligent aliens, but if there are any, they're very likely to be approximately our size. That doesn't mean six feet tall. That means somewhere between, say, a redwood tree and a puppy. Mm -hmm. But that's actually a very, very small range of sizes for the universe. So number one is we are mid midway in size. We're at the center of all possible sizes. We are living at the center of the visible universe. Now, what does that mean? It means that every galaxy is at the center of its own visible universe. This may seem obvious, but it's not because what it does is it tells us how the universe is set up. It tells us that there's a speed of light, that there's um, a certain distance that we can see only because the universe is a certain age. So we're at the center of our visible universe. We are living at the midpoint of time from the point of view of our solar system. Um, our solar system formed about four and a half billion years ago, and it has about five or maybe six billion years to go before the sun um, expands and uh, possibly absorbs the um, inner planets. So we're living at the midpoint of the solar system. We're living at the midpoint of the best period for life on Earth when there's oxygen and water and uh, Earth has its best uh, conditions for complicated life like us. There's a number, there are more. We've come up with seven or eight ways so far to that show we that, are uh... actually central to the basic ideas of the universe. Now, no one has to say, oh, yay, now we're central. The point is that we have never, for the last, and really since the Middle Ages, we have never had a way of thinking of ourselves as fitting into the universe in a way that made sense and that was actually accurate. So this is, if we want to have a place in the universe, if we want to understand how we humans fit in, we can really understand a lot about both us and the universe by realizing that we are central. So we're not living on some average planet of an average star. Our planet is quite extraordinary. I mean, they've already discovered over a thousand extrasolar planets. None of them are like Earth. There are so many things about Earth and our solar system that are extremely rare that when you put them together, um, we are living on an extraordinary planet in an extraordinary solar system. So we should be appreciating this rather than worrying like the Woody Allen character about what's going to happen billions mm -hmm. of years from now. What we really should be doing is saying this is absolutely fantastic. We have been living without knowing until recently in an absolutely marvelous place, in an extraordinary universe. And our generation is possibly the most important generation that has ever lived because we are responsible for the future of this planet. And this is a very pivotal moment right now. I mean, the political and economic decisions we make right now could have ramifications many thousands of years into the future for our planet and for the human species. So here we are in this beautiful place and we are living at an incredibly important moment. We matter to the cosmos. And I think philosophically, this is a fantastic place to begin to understand each other and to join together in a common worldview. This is something we can share regardless of our religions.
giving us excitement if you're just joining us about the universe and our place in it are my guests on Religion for Life, Nancy Ellen Abrams and Joel Premack, authors of The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. And you can find information about their book at their website and see fantastic videos. That website is new-universe.org. And the idea here is that we have, uh, we just have a few minutes left, but we want to talk about the sense of purpose. Think of the Middle Ages, cl- time of Columbus, say around 1500 and Copernicus. Uh, they kind of had a small universe and a small time, but they had a reason for living. It was, from our perspective now, uh, it, it was wrong, but nevertheless, they had a reason. And we have a reason for living now as well. There's a sense of urgency about uh, the fact that we're knowing so many fantastic things about the universe through physics and science, but we've also reached a peak in which we are uh, hitting the limits of our planet in, in very real ways. And so how can we make that transition for taking responsibility, taking action, finding a mythology and a worldview that fits our science? Is, that's a sense of uh, your message, is it? Well, that's what we take up in the latter part of the new universe and the human future. That's the human future part. Uh, What's happened is that just as the universe did at the very beginning, this period that we call cosmic inflation, the universe expanded exponentially. That means that in each interval of time, uh, the universe doubled in size and then doubled again in the next equal size interval and doubled again. And that's a very rapid increase in the expansion rate, very different from the kind of expansion that the universe experienced for billions of years after that. Well, we humans are undergoing an exponential expansion in our use of resources and our impact on Mm -hmm. our planet Earth. This began about 1800 with the Industrial Revolution, and the doubling time has been about 20 or 30 years. Roughly every 30 years, the amount of stuff that we use and uh, the amount of waste that we produce has doubled, and there have been a lot of those doublings, and now... uh, the impacts are beginning to be felt in many, many different ways across the entire planet. What that means is that we're going to have to change the way that we behave on a time scale that's defined by this doubling time of roughly 30 years, roughly a human generation. We only have one or two more doublings before the consequences, if we don't make these important changes, are going to be really drastic. We've had, as a result of the increase in uh, the greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, the world has had an increase in temperature of a little over a degree Fahrenheit. Uh, Doesn't seem like much, but that's the cause of all of these weird changes in our climate. And we are committed, as a result of the greenhouse gases we've already emitted, to an additional at least two more degrees. So what we've seen so far in climate change is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the beginning. Uh, Now, whether we're going to have an increase of five to 10 degrees across the United States, uh, which is what will happen if we continue with business as usual for the rest of this century, Mm -hmm. uh, or whether we keep things under control and don't take a chance of really changing the whole nature of planet Earth. Uh, That's going to be decided in the next 30 to 60 years, the next couple of doublings. And 
the greenhouse gas phenomenon is just one example of a great many, uh, several of which we discuss in the book, uh, that are basically telling us that we have to change the way we think about all the big issues, including our whole planet. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're doomed. There's plenty of time if humans can begin to understand the predicament that we're in and get beyond the uh, petty politics of, uh, you know, one side accusing the other side and uh, many people simply ignoring the facts uh, that the vast majority of scientists are really quite confident of. Uh, the United States is a weird country in that uh, we are the leaders in the world in high technology and we're falling further and further behind in the general understanding of how things work by the population. Uh, that's obviously not a recipe that uh, bodes well. So we're going to have to learn more about how the universe and our planet works and then we're going to have to uh, come together across the world and decide to make changes that will allow us to live and enjoy this beautiful planet for the long term. I have just about a minute or so left. My guests, uh, Joel Premack and Nancy Ellen Abrams, author of a fantastic book, The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. What uh, folks who are listening to this radio program right now, what should they do? In addition to uh, checking out your book and visiting your website, new-universe.org, what's the takeaway? Um, this is the biggest spiritual challenge of our time. It's really easy to fall back on what religions taught us thousands of years ago, but none of those religions understood the planet we live on or the future we're actually facing. It's really absolutely crucial that people wake up to realize that we could share a picture of reality that could help save our planet if we are just willing to open our minds to the possibility that we need to think on a larger size scale than our religions are able to explain to us. And to realize that we don't have to get rid of our religions, we just need to start thinking on a much bigger size scale and that we can agree around the world about how our planet and how our universe actually operates. If we could do this, this would be a spiritual transformation around the world. We need to engage our artists, our songwriters, storytellers. Yes. Everyone in this, in this product of what it means to be human today and how, it, how we can be ancestors, as you put it. Yes, how we can be honored ancestors. We, we, will right. be on, we will be ancestors, but we don't want to be reviled ancestors right. by people who realize we ruined the planet. We can be honored ancestors a thousand years from now, and we can enjoy the pleasure of knowing we'll be that now if we make the right decisions today where we take the, uh, our descendants' interests into account. My guests today on Religion for Life have been Nancy Ellen Abrams and Joel Premack, authors of The New Universe and the Human Future, How a Shared Cosmology Could Transform the World. Thank you for being with me today, and thank you for your important work. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Schack, the minister at the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation on the website fpcelizabethton.org. You can also find out more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.me. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Today's guest, Nancy Ellen Abrams, is also a singer-songwriter. 
She's produced an album entitled Alien Wisdom. We will close with a portion of her song, The Handwriting of God. Be well. Genesis says on the first day, God said, let there be light. It was three days later that the sun, moon, and stars were created to decorate the night. I'm not the first to notice. Three thousand years ago they cared. Where did that first light come from? When the sun, moon, and stars weren't there Some said it was the auras of the holy Or a metaphor for wisdom or grace But science has found the first light And it's 